You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at 6 o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, happy July 4th week. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra for leading us in worship. As we continue in our time, if you would turn your Bible to John chapter 13. Let me pray for us and we will behold our God in the face of Jesus by the preaching of his word. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for what this week means for Americans. And we are grateful for the great sacrifices to secure the freedoms that we have. But we recognize as we gather here this morning, we gather as another nation, a holy nation from every tribe and tongue, a nation that is gathered around one king, King Jesus. Father, we, our greatest need this morning is that we would behold him. I pray that you would do that by your spirit through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting that it was July the 2nd that John Adams, the second president of the United States, considered to be the day we celebrate. He he refused to celebrate, in fact, on July the 4th, and he couldn't be convinced otherwise. And the reason for that is that the Continental Congress declared its freedom from Great Britain on July the 2nd. 1776 and not July the 4th, when it voted to approve a resolution uh, presented by representative from Virginia, Richard Henry Lee, that said, these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. So after voting for independence on July the 2nd, The Continental Congress drafted a document to explain their move to the public. That became the Declaration of Independence, which was actually signed on July the 4th. One random story about July 4th has nothing to do with anything here. But on that day, July the 4th, 1776, our first president... Of course, he wasn't present at the time, but George Washington, he bought a broom. Just an interesting tidbit of information. Um, When he became uh, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army in 1775, he refused his salary. But he he did agree that uh, his expenses would be paid. And so on July the 4th, 1776, the records show that he went and bought a broom, which kind of reveals that Miss Washington's honeydew list remained in force even on that monumental day. Of course, more importantly than the honeydew list, the Declaration of Independence was a declaration of war against Great Britain. And just a short time after the war had begun, there was this man on a horse, and he's traveling through Uh, the woods, and he comes upon these soldiers who are trying to hoist this massive cannon in place uh, to defend against British attack. There were four soldiers, 
three of those soldiers were doing all the work. They were grunting, and, and, and they were really um, having a difficult time getting that heavy cannon in place. But there was one soldier who was standing over them, barking orders at them, screaming at them. Well, this stranger directs his horse over to them, and, and uh, he, he gets off the horse, and he said to that man who was screaming at the other three men, those men could use some help. Why don't you lend a hand instead of shouting at them? And that man responded to him, well, I'm a corporal. The stranger said, oh, I beg your pardon. Please let me help. And so he dismounted, and he joined the three soldiers in getting that heavy cannon in place. And then he turned to the corporal, and he said, Mr. Corporal, the next time you have a job like this, and not enough men to do it, send a message to me at my headquarters, and I will come and help you again. Just ask for your commander-in-chief, Mr. George Washington. Now, maybe you, like me, are stirred, moved by our great commander-in-chief and his willing to go low for the sake of soldiers he did not even know. But our text this morning would tell us that's just a dim shadow of the kind of condescension that we see from our greater president and king, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he underwent what theologians call infinite humiliation for the sake of our salvation. Now, what is that term of humiliation? It's a term that's been used throughout church history. And I want to give you a definition. This is from the Baptist Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where it says Christ's humiliation consists in his being born. I mean, just the fact that he was born took on Human flesh was a condescension of infinite proportions, the eternal Son of God. He was born, and he was made under the law. That is, he came to fulfill the law's demands as our substitute, and he underwent the miseries of this life. He was tested in all things just as we are. He, he would have had viruses and colds. He, he underwent the miseries of this life. He underwent the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. And he continued under the power of death and being buried for a time. That's Christ's humiliation. And we've seen it throughout the Gospel of John. But we come to a new level of this humiliation unfolding before our very eyes in John chapter 13. <clears throat> it's now Thursday, Thursday of Passion Week. When Jesus awoke that morning, on Thursday morning, he would not close his eyes again until he closed them in death on Friday afternoon. His 12, his disciples, have assembled with him for what would be the last Passover meal. <clears throat> he would transform that Passover meal into the first Lord's Supper. 
One of those 12 will depart in a short time on a satanic mission of betrayal. The other 11 will make their way with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane after a few hours together in this room. But from there, the 11 will be scattered. They will not want anything to do with Jesus, all right? Once it gets really hot in the kitchen. And Jesus will be arrested. And he'll be taken, after having been arrested, to the high priest emeritus, whose name was, was Annas. Annas would then direct him to the present high priest, who was Caiaphas, who then would direct him uh, to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who then directed him to Herod, the king. Then Herod would direct him back to Pontius Pilate before being led down the Via Della Rosa to the cross. He will be hung on the cross somewhere between 15 and 18 hours after the events we see in John chapter 13. The chain of events that I just described will be preceded by what we see here in the upper room with his 12 disciples. This brings us to the second major section of the Gospel of John. The first major section has been called the Book of the Signs. We saw in the first 11 chapters, there were seven sign miracles. All seven miracles point beyond themselves to who Jesus is and what he would accomplish by his cross and his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his coming again to judge the world on the last day. Uh, he turned the water into the wine. He healed the official son, chapter 4. He healed uh, the, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5. He walked on water, chapter 6. He fed the 5,000 with the fishes and loaves, chapter 6. He healed the, the man born blind in chapter 9. And then we saw in chapter 11, with a word, he raised Lazarus from the dead. The book of the signs. Now we come to the second major section of John. It's been called the book of the passion. Chapter 13, throughout the rest of the book, begins, starts in chapter, on Thursday. And it will lead us to the cross, his passion. Some have even called it the book of glory. I like that even better. Because glory was the goal after he was raised from the grave. The public ministry of Jesus, it's like when the mighty men brought David water. But don't call him a mighty man. I'll never hear the end of it. He poured it out, in fact. I won't do that. The public ministry to the crowds is over at this point. Yes, Jesus will speak a few words to those who arrest him and, and examine him. But aside from that, his teaching now centers on his disciples and the events surrounding the cross. 
Chapters 13 to 17 record what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. Five chapters. We're going to be in these next five chapters for a few weeks. And these five chapters are important because all the events, all the things you see taught in those five chapters, you don't see anywhere else in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are exclusive teachings and revelations in the Gospel of John. But to kick off that section, we come to the prologue of found in John chapter 13. Uh, John chapter 1 began with a prologue, verses 1 to 18. And now we come to a prologue, verses 1 to 17, to kick off the second section of the book. Now we're going to look at the whole prologue today. We're going to look at the first five verses of this prologue. We see in this beginning of this prologue just one central point, and, and it's this. Jesus' humiliation is a display of infinite love. Let me repeat that. Jesus' humiliation is a display of infinite love. Look with me in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, of course, you know the Passover was the time they would gather once a year to celebrate what God had done in redeeming his enslaved people through the blood of the Passover lamb. All right? And so, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. The theme of Jesus' hour has been central throughout John. We've seen it time and time again. We have been told that things will not happen because his hour had not yet come. We've seen that several times in the Gospel of John. So, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And because his hour had not yet come, Jesus' haters could no more do anything to him than they could stop the sun from shining. What that signals to us is God is sovereign over all of these events. The cross is not plan B. It is the plan of the ages. But now starting, and we saw it in chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come. Again, this drives home to us that the cross was not incidental. It was the purpose for which the Son of God took on human flesh. And so we see God's glory in his sovereignty over Jesus' affairs even the cross. But we also see God's glory in Jesus' love for his own. We see it here in verse 1. When Jesus knew his hour had not come, or had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own. Now I want you to think about this. Jesus knew full well what his disciples were going to do in just a few hours. He knew that one was going to betray him. 
But he knew the other 11 weren't going to do a whole lot better. They were going to scatter, and, and one was actually going to deny him three times. And yet, he does something that you and I rarely do. He loved those who didn't deserve it. And that's not how I tend to respond. I tend to respond like Peter when he cut off Malchus's ear with a sword. Or, at best, I may ignore the person. But what we see here, this is actually what love is. Everything else is costume jewelry. He loved them to the end. Now, what does that mean? Scholars, you know, debate that. And I think it is ambiguous for a reason. He's going to love them to the point of the cross. But he's going to love them even to the end of their lives. In spite of them. In spite of their shenanigans. He will love them to the end. This is intended to get our attention because it is the love of Christ that changes us. I remember speaking at, uh, in, in Wheaton, Illinois in 1998 on Memorial Day weekend. And I came across in this chapel a, a plaque and it had one verse in it. I'd read the verse before, but it struck me like it had never struck me before. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, and it, had, it was a plaque surrounded by a bunch of missionaries who had died for their faith. And it was one verse, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ controls us. It's the love of Christ that changes us. It is. And that's what we see here in this passage. And trust me, these disciples will remember this even after they have scattered even after Peter would deny him, and even after Judas would betray him. Look with me in verse 2. During supper, what is that supper? Well, it's the Passover meal, right? That, now, John is not going to mention the Lord's Supper for whatever reason. The other Gospels are left to do that. But that's what this is, where he transforms that Passover lamb to reflect symbolically the one who would actually die once for all. And he says, during supper when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now the, the grand story of scripture really begins, or the meta-narrative, the dramatic aspect of the Scripture begin after God created the heavens and the earth good. And we see the enemy coming into the garden. Adam should have exercised dominion over him as that was his mandate as the image of God. And, and, and we see Adam and Eve fall. But there in Genesis 3.15, we see this beginning of a conflict between Satan and the Son of God. All right? that would really become the drama of dramas in the scriptures. And the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will be in conflict, but behind those seeds are powers, the, the power of the evil one and the Son of God himself. And, and so this is coming to a head. And really it's the backdrop of all the gospels. We see at the very beginning of the gospels that, that the devil tried to prevent Jesus carrying out his messianic work by slaughtering Jesus. 
in Herod's mass slaughter of the sons born in Bethlehem. He also attacked him after the baptism, right? When he tempted him three different times and had Jesus given into these temptations, we wouldn't have a savior. And then, ironically, he, uh, he works through religious leaders time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry. How many times does Jesus say to the religious leaders, your, your, your king, your ruler is the devil? And now he has infiltrated one of the 12. That's remarkable. Infiltrated one of the 12 most intimate friends, disciples of Jesus. But Judas was no victim. You need to understand that. Think of the benefits that Judas had from being with Jesus. And I want to submit to you this morning, he had no greater benefit than you do. If you're, a, if you're a, a, an attender of a church where the word of God has been preached, you have, he had no greater benefit than you, but he had great benefits. He was an eyewitness uh, to Jesus' sign miracles. He, he, he heard Jesus' teachings. He saw Jesus' character. What benefits Judas had. But here's the deal. And this is the, this is the deal with many people who are raised in churches, but who've never bowed the knee. The world was too important to him. That's what it came down to. And here's what happened. He opened himself up to being controlled by the devil. It's scary, but it can happen. And it still happens. J.C. Ryle, on all the coast of England, there is not such a beacon to warn sailors of danger as Judas Iscariot is to warn Christians. He shows us what links a man may go in religious profession and yet turn out a rotten hypocrite and prove never to have been converted. He shows us the uselessness of the highest privileges unless we have a heart to value them. Um, we're not Roman Catholics where this happens in the doing. You have to have a heart to value the great privileges that you have in coming to church when songs are sung, praise songs, and, and scripture is read and prayed, and, and you hear the word preached. Great privileges, but you have to have a heart that actually responds, right? Privileges alone, without grace, save nobody and will only make hell deeper. He's saying there is accountability that comes. Judas had a greater accountability than, than most. But note the hopeful contrast in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. I love that language. That's hopeful, isn't it? Don't let the news determine your reality. The Father has given all things into the hands of Jesus. That's your reality. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. And so the devil may have put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, but God the Father has given all things into the hands of Jesus. That's the more important truth, right? Now, I have to admit, the night before the cross seems like an unlikely place for sovereignty language. 
What do you mean all things have been placed into the hands of Jesus? He's about to be slaughtered on the cross. Ironically, all things are placed into his hands. But note what he physically takes into his hands. I think the contrast is is intentional. Verse 4. He rose from supper. That proves John was a southerner, by the way. They say dinner in the north. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now, Luke's account, and by the way, the gospels never contradict each other. They complement each other. Luke's account tells us it was at this time, these knuckleheads, and by the way, if if mere man is writing these accounts, they would never have told this story. This tells you that that, that this is a spirit-inspired account, but they are actually arguing the night before the cross about which one would be the greatest. Luke chapter 22. And, And Jesus' response in Luke 22, 27 is this, I am among you as the one who serves. That's who's great in God's economy. And I do believe that that's likely when we see what we see in verse 4. Right after that. But this isn't just an example he's given. We're going to see next week that it is an example. He is giving us an acted out parable that points to something greater than we see at face value. I want you to notice again. He rose from supper. What was the supper? What was the center attraction of the supper? It was the lamb that had been slain, right? So he rose from supper. And notice as well, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. That's the same language we'll see in John 20 when the greater Lamb of God is sacrificed and he rises and when they come into the the tomb, it is apparent he has laid aside his garments. There's a whole lot going on in this passage than meets the eye. Notice verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. How many pairs of feet did Jesus wash? Knowing what he knew, we wouldn't have washed any of them. You know you're not going to wash at least 11 of them, because when he gets hot in the kitchen, they're going to flee the scene. I know I'm not going to wash Peter's feet because uh, he's going to betray me three times. We don't do that for people that betray us, do we? Or, Or at least he denies us three times. And then certainly I'm not going to wash Judas's feet because he betrays me unto death. But it's very apparent here that that, that he washed Judas' feet. And we know as far back as John 6, verses 70 and 71, that Jesus knew that 
Judas was going to betray him. But think about this. When, when Judas leaves in just a few minutes to go meet with the ones who will kill Jesus, he's walking on the feet that Jesus hand-washed. It's quite remarkable love here. And, and there's a, a, a remarkable contrast that you lose in English as well. The devil had put it, that verb, put it into the heart of Judas. By contrast, Jesus poured water into a basin. Same verb. John's being intentional here. The verb is balo. You can spell it in English, B-A-L-L-O. The devil put it into the heart of Judas, and Jesus put this water poured the water into the basin. And so the contrast is stark. The contrast between Jesus and Judas, but also Jesus and the ruler of this world. What is John giving us here? He's giving us a picture of infinite love. And it's only that love that's going to change your heart. And beholding that love, it's what saves you and it's what sanctifies you. It's also what satisfies you. Is this love. Jesus is being contrasted. The greatest man in the history of the world is being contrasted with the most evil, diabolical instigators of the most wicked act in the history of the world. His action here is unprecedented. Uh, there's been a lot written on how nasty their feet would be. I'll spare you of that. But this was a nasty thing to do. Foot washing was carried out by by servants, and not Jewish servants. They had to be Gentile servants. And so this would have been a period of, of great embarrassment. They were probably embarrassed of Jesus that he would stoop to this as they realized what he's doing. But this was a prophetic action on the part of Jesus, just like you see with the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He is acting out a parable of who he is and what he came to do in his ultimate mission. Now, to see the significance, all you have to do is compare it with Philippians 2. There's an intentional comparison. Now, I think John was written later than Philippians, of course, the events that John writes about occurred before Paul wrote Philippians. But remember Philippians 2, John, uh, Paul is concerned about division in the church of Philippi. He's concerned about backbiting, slander, uh, disunity, uh, judgmental spirit. He, that's what he's concerned about because he realizes a church that's filled with people like that bear false witness to an accomplishment of Jesus which is reconciliation and unity. And here's what he does. Instead of saying, you guys need to get along, he says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal to God. That's the context. And I want you to note how these go together. Notice verse three. Jesus knowing he had come from God. Compare that to Philippians 2, verse 6. Though he was in the form of God. Verse 4. Laid 
aside his garments. Compare that with Philippians 2 verse 7. He emptied himself. Whether the humans intended this comparison, the Holy Spirit certainly intends us to see this comparison. Now, some wrong-headed theologians of the 19th century argue from that that Jesus, when he took on human flesh, the Son of God, divested himself of, of deity. Well, that's a heresy. And here's the reason it's a heresy. God is immutable. God cannot de-God himself. Jesus, our Son of God, could not lay aside his deity. It was not his deity he laid aside. It was his dignity as the Son of God. Jesus emptied himself not by subtraction, but by addition. He took on the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't a sinner, but the likeness of sinful flesh. And it eclipsed the glory of who he is. He emptied himself not by evacuating himself of the eternal attributes he possessed, but by taking attributes he had not previously possessed. Okay? Well, notice as well, verse 4, taking a towel. He took a towel. Compare that to Philippians 2, 7, taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. Of course, Paul's point there is not that, that Jesus exchanged the form of God for the form of a servant, but that he now manifests the form of God in the form of a serpent, a servant. Above verse 5, he poured water into a basin. Compared that to Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself. Verse 5, he began to wash the disciples' feet. Philippians 2.8 tells us he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Next week, we will make that connection how his death brings cleansing. How it brings cleansing. He voluntarily descended to the realm where he was despised and rejected and acquainted with grief. And then one more connection. We'll see this next week. Verse 12, he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place. I love that. What does that remind you of? After he'd washed their feet and made them clean, and I'm making the point next week that his, this making them clean by the water points us to his own baptism and death where he cleanses us by his blood. He put on his outer garments and resumed his place. Connect that to Philippians 2, verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so Jesus is acting out symbolically what the apostle Paul describes theologically. And as we close here, try to envision, it's impossible to do so, by the way, the infinite distance in dignity and honor between the eternal Son of God and those humans in our culture that are most exalted and honored today. The thought like that raises questions like, how much respect and honor do we think others owe us? Boy, when someone doesn't honor me, it chaps me. All right? 
It does. Or ask this question. Who do we think is below our sacrificial service to them? I mean, Jesus is serving those who will forsake him in various ways. Some will flee, one will deny, and one will betray. And yet, how many in our churches do we ignore, do we distance ourselves from? Because they're not doing it the way I would have done it. I'm, I'm speaking to myself. And Jesus is giving us what the Christian life really looks like. Everything else is a parody. Everything else is, is costume jewelry. It's fake. It's hypocritical. And if there's no repentance, it's damnable. He's giving us the way of the cross. When Jesus left the glories of heaven and took on human flesh as our incognito king, his purpose was not just to rescue us from the penalty of sin. Sometimes Southern Baptists only focus on that. And that's important. It's vital. If he hasn't saved you from the penalty of sin, you're going to hell. And he saved us from the penalty of sin by taking the penalty, right? But that's not all he came to do. And he didn't just do this act to serve as an example. He certainly did that. We'll see next week that this is an example for us of humility. It was also to reorient the inclinations of our heart. That's why he does this. So that his mindset progressively becomes our mindset. That would change every marriage in this room. It would change every home. It would, it would change this community. And that's what Jesus has come to do. And this is a word to every believer here. Because most of you are. But maybe you're like me. You see Jesus as an example. And you realize, I fall short of the glory of God. And he is giving us this to grow us up, mature us. Then, but we must respond. We have to respond in the obedience of faith. But it's also a word to every person here today who's never trusted in Jesus. Jesus went low for sinners. And now you must go low in repentance. Or you don't get those privileges. And so as Adam and musicians come forward, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. What better week to respond to the saving message of Jesus than the week we celebrate freedom? Because that is real freedom. Freedom from the curse of the law. Freedom to obey God's law with gratitude and thanksgiving. But it comes by going low in repentance and faith in Jesus. Won't you respond to that as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.